Check podcasts. This is Van Collar. Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and this is Van Collar, British Columbia's bonafide culture and politics TV talk show right here on Check and Check Plus. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Tonight, let's refocus on BC politics with a very special guest. This month, the BC NDP government had two major announcements concerning the concurrent public health emergencies, the COVID-19 pandemic and the drug poisoning crisis. For the pandemic, the mask mandate is lifted and the mandatory vaccine passport program will end on April 8th. For the drug poisoning crisis, now in its sixth year, the government will form an all-party committee to take the politics out of this public health emergency and build consensus for real solutions on this file. To talk about the implications of these announcements, we are joined by the MLA for Cowichan Valley and the leader of the BC Green Party. She is the philosopher queen of the BC legislature. She is Sonia Firstenau. Sonia... So nice to see you. So nice to be here, Mo. So Kobe's over, right? The mask mandate is gone. The vaccine passport program ends on April 8th. British Columbians are celebrating, but you have some concerns. You know, I just checked into the hotel down in Vancouver, mm -hmm. and uh, the manager comes over to me and she says, Oh my gosh, Sonia, I just saw this news about a new variant, BA2. Right. And she said, I, I'm so surprised to hear this. I didn't know that this was happening. But if you were monitoring what's happening in the UK in particular, South Korea, uh, China, mm -hmm. you would see that there has been this spike of a new variant or an Omicron variant, BA2. And as has happened with every other wave, uh, Delta, Omicron, it's what happens in the UK and Europe eventually, a few weeks legs comes to North America. Right. I want to look at it through a public health lens of how does public health work at its best? And that is education and tools. Mm -hmm. And so on two fronts with education, we have seen this government really not live up to what it needs to provide in terms of knowledge and understanding to the public. It's an airborne virus. Right. We just had the premier finally acknowledge this in an interview last week with Global. He said, finally, it's airborne. The minister of health wouldn't say it. Dr. Henry would sort of kind of work around not saying it. Mm -hmm. uh, but to understand how it's transmitted is to be informed on how to best not catch it. Mm -hmm. right? And so masks are really important. But ventilation, filtration of air, these are really effective tools. And that's the second part of public health. It's tools. And so providing high quality masks to people, we should have had rapid tests going into the Omicron phase, we didn't. Mm. Uh, and ensuring that where it can, government is, in, is making sure that we have the cleanest air possible. This is an excellent approach to public health. It not only addresses the transmission of, of COVID, but it makes air cleaner everywhere, which is good for our brains, it's good for schools, it's good for uh, the fact that we deal with the health emergency of forest fire smoke every year now. Right. So it, it, it was like 
what this government could have done, which was say, okay, how do we approach this in a thoroughly public health-oriented way? Uh, they really didn't do. So you're disagreeing with Dr. Henry's approach right now? Yeah, I, and I think this is another thing: is it, it was a global pandemic. Yeah, uh, none of us have lived through a, a pandemic on this scale. Of mm -hmm. course, there's been the the AIDS pandemic that started in the 1980s. We've seen Ebola, we've seen SARS and MERS, but on this scale, this is not anything anybody alive has lived through. Yeah, of course, the responses aren't going to be perfect. What's really important is to have that capacity to look at it and say, how do we do better? How do we improve? How do we learn from this? Mm -hmm. And that, again, that public health lens, how do we ensure that those who are most at risk from something like a pandemic, and that's the people with the least resources, people in frontline working jobs, people mm -hmm. who don't have the, the financial security or capacity to avoid uh, infection as easily as others, how do we ensure that they aren't impacted the most? Right. And to do that, you need to be collecting data, you need to be looking at it in a disaggregated way to understand different impacts on uh, different racial uh, backgrounds of people, and then make policies that that protect the most number of people. Right. So in terms of the public health response, when we talk about your concerns, the government just announced a public review of, of the COVID response. So wouldn't this be addressed in that? The review is pretty limited. Okay. Uh, it doesn't include the decisions that were made specifically uh, about COVID by the health officer. Uh, so it, what does it include then? Well, it, it it's, you know, were you satisfied? Does this, did this affect? work for you. I, I, it's a communications exercise for the most part, right? Got it's it. the government being able to say, oh, look, we went to the public. We asked them how we did. And turns out we did pretty good. Right. Okay. <laughs> I want to shift gears to the other public health emergency, the drug poisoning mm -hmm. crisis. Last year, 2,200 people, more than 2,200 people in British Columbia died as a result of the illicit drug supply mm -hmm. in this province. For almost a year, you've been very adamant that you want an all-party committee, sort of what we, sort of like what we saw during COVID, where the BC Greens, the BC Liberals, and the BC NDP would sit together, build consensus, and work together on solutions in a collaborative way. Premier John Horgan just announced that he is going to move forward with this committee almost a year after you first suggested it. Why is this collaborative approach more effective rather than the traditional government opposition approach where you and the BC Liberals can basically act as uh, critics or hammer the government on maybe what they're not doing? Like, why is this collaborative approach better? At, at, at its core, what it allows for is to get a shared understanding of the reality of this health crisis and a shared understanding of, of what is creating this terrible toll of death um, to understand the, the solutions that exist and are potentially uh, applicable in an urgent way, which mm -hmm. I think we need to be doing. It, to treat it as a, you know, government's going to do this and opposition is going to tell them that they're wrong is really to ignore the fact that this is a tragedy that is unfolding every single day in this province. Seven people are dying every day. And we need to recognize that some things are beyond being politicized. Right. The committee allows us to come together 
to agree that we have to find ways to prevent these deaths and to move with that shared understanding of reality to solutions as quickly as we can. Right. But the BCNDP are still a majority government. They still yeah. make up cabinet. So my yeah. fear is that this committee just gives them political cover. And what I mean by that is you might disagree with something that the committee agrees on and it, it moves forward in policy or in action or perhaps even inaction. And you stand up and you say, well, you know, this is the wrong way to do it. And the government goes, well, hey, Sonia, you were at the table. We were building consensus. So doesn't this take some of your teeth as an opposition party for, from from this issue? The committee will, will make recommendations. And typically what we find with committee processes is those tend to be unanimous recommendations. Mm -hmm. And that, again, comes from that shared reality. When you hear the same information from the same experts and everybody can hear the questions being asked and the answers to those questions, you build that consensus. Yeah. And so out of that committee is going to come, I expect, recommendations to government. Then it really is up to cabinet and government to implement those recommendations. I will point to the 2017 report of the Health Committee and of its many recommendations, uh, the final one was move forward with safe supply mm -hmm. in British Columbia. And so you're right to identify that there is a potential for this committee to do this work and then for government to just either not implement or, or do something different. The hope I have is that because all three parties are participating in this, that the that shared reality and that shared agenda moves beyond, you know, an election to election kind of approach and mm -hmm. says, this is a public health emergency. This is a, a really significant cause of death in our province. And we are going to implement these recommendations that are reached through consensus and mm -hmm. through hearing the evidence and the, the advice of everything from experts to people with lived experience. Yeah. Well, I hope you're right, Sonia. I have to ask you, though, Premier John Horgan is pretty popular, right? He polls well. It must be because he's done a great job on COVID and climate change and the drug poisoning crisis, because how else do you explain his popularity? You know, one thing I'll, I'll give credit to his team. I think they've done a good job of, of leveraging, you know, a, a likable character and ensuring that that's what the public sees. And, you know, kudos to them for, for doing a good job on that front. We've been through several years of crises now. Mm -hmm. And I think what people want, for the most part, is to not have to think about politics or more uncertainty and so stability is something that people are really craving. Right. And, you know, that's what was offered in the 2020 election was stick with us, the NDP, and, and we'll give you the stability that you want in these uncertain times. And I think that what the NDP has to be aware of is over time, uh, people are going to start to look at outcomes mm -hmm. and not just narratives. And when you have a government that says, we really care about climate change, but continues to give billions in subsidies to the oil and gas industry, particularly LNG Canada, which is based on massively increasing fracking in Northeast BC and methane em emissions, that's not climate leadership in mm -hmm. 2022. 
people are going to look at the drug poisoning crisis. And as we've seen, the number of people dying every day, every week, every month continues to go up. Mm-hmm. And unless we start to see some some real turnaround on that and we see the harm reduction coming in and, and fewer people dying and suffering, people are going to say, well, maybe these guys aren't be able to deliver on their promises. Affordability is another one. This is a government that ran on affordability. And as we know right now with inflation rates, cost of housing, cost of groceries, Mm -hmm. affordability is something that a lot of people are really concerned about. So, you know, we're one and a half years into this government's mandate as a majority government. They're coasting a lot on what was accomplished in the minority. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that we made big contributions to getting big money out of uh, politics, uh, environmental reform. Clean BC was very much a BC Green driven policy agenda. Uh, The Innovation Commission or the Fair Wages Commission, all of these things came out of that deal. Uh, The NDP is going to have to show that they have some of their own ideas. Right. So let's talk about this idea about identity and ideas. The BC NDP have really identified themselves or marketed themselves as working for regular British Columbians. The BC Liberals have marketed themselves as the party for free enterprise and that being the the way to achieve success and growth for all British Columbians. The Greens have always across Canada, marketed themselves as having an environmental lens on all these issues because of climate change. However, we've seen in BC that all the major parties, the BC NDP and the BC Liberals, they include a climate change plan, which almost seems to take away a bit of your identity or your party's identity, I should say. And so my question for you is, what is the identity of the BC Greens? A couple of things. First, you know, I wouldn't say that the other two parties have good climate plans when they both agree on subsidizing the oil and gas industry. I mean, that's that's not a climate plan right now. What your predecessor but, Andrew Weaver thought that the BCNDP had a great climate plan. Yeah, again, I, I'm going to let the public square that uh, kind of discrepancy of literally propping up an industry that is contributing to climate change and saying that you have a, a strong plan on climate doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. The BC Greens and and my vision is really centered on health and well-being mm-hmm. and a recognition that our health is dependent on the health of our environment. Uh, but our health is also dependent on good policies that ensure that people have what they need to be able to thrive. And that's access to family doctors. That's ensuring that there are the conditions for thriving. Uh, early childhood education is something that we worked a lot on in the minority government. I'm really proud of uh, Katrina Chen and the work she's done on this. And, you know, for example, moving it into the Ministry of Education, that was a BC Green initiative. This should be seen as a pivotal part of education, early childhood But that's another example of the BC NDP usurping your idea. So why vote Green or, or why identify with the BC Greens then? What's the difference? The vision that politicians and political parties should be putting forward is the vision for the future. And I talk about four pillars for the BC Greens as that vision for the future. That is health, healthy people, mm-hmm. healthy communities, thriving communities where people feel safe and have the capacity to be active participants in their community, have access to things like transit and parks and that kind of you know, things that make life better. Yeah. Uh, 
trusted government and institutions, uh, and of course, a healthy environment. Mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that these things come together, right? That if you try to fulfill all four of those pillars, you start getting to a place where people feel safe, where people can be taking risks if they want to, because they know that there's that safety that exists for them. Right. But I think we really have to look at the future and, and, and say, what is the future we want to provide to the next generation and the generation after that, for which they don't have to forgive us? And the way that we're going with growing inequality, with growing uh, impacts from climate change, uh, loss of biodiversity, the erosion of our public health care system, mm -hmm. with, you know, we're really worried about what we're seeing on there. What's that future that we're giving to our children and grandchildren? There might be some British Columbians, however, that say the history of British Columbia in terms of its economic history mm -hmm. has been that of natural resource extraction. And what you're suggesting is kicking the ladder that was once uh, available to people for social mobility in, in many different communities. How do you square that with people who say, you know, these communities thrive on, on the extraction of natural resources and you're against that? Oh, I'm not against it. I'm, 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 but if we are going to be extracting resources and natural resources, we have to make sure that the benefit of those resources are staying in communities. Mm. I, on my way here this morning, passed a, a logging truck on its way to Nanaimo uh, with logs that were no more than a foot in diameter. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the helijet port, uh, I saw where those were being loaded and it was onto a giant ship, raw logs. Right. Uh, how many jobs is that? That's a couple jobs of the feller bunchers, the big machines that take out these trees. It's a couple jobs of the, the logging truck drivers. And then the rest of that benefit is shipped offshore. Right. You would remember in school, we learned about primary, secondary, and tertiary economies. Sure. We have this story of British Columbia, of the past being about, you know, we are a resource-based economy. Currently, those resource-based parts of our economy are less than 5% of GDP, fewer than 5% of jobs. That story doesn't make sense anymore, and particularly the way that we are continuing to export raw resources mm. and really provide profit-generating activities to companies, many of which aren't even based in British Columbia. Mm. So how do we manage and ensure that resources that are public goods are actually contributing to the public good of our communities. And at the same time, recognize that our economy is 95% not based on resource extraction. Mm. We wanna recognize the value and benefit of knowledge economy, the, the role of education, high tech, innovation. Look at BC was a huge contributor to a lot of the innovation around COVID and around vaccines and, and the response to this, the research that's going on, I want us to export the, the capacity and technology and innovation to move this world into a post-fossil fuel economy. So you don't want us to be anchored by the past or the narrative of the past, basically. Well, we can hearing. recognize the importance of that past in, in where it's gotten us to in BC, mm -hmm. but we have to be honest about where we are right now yeah. and then have that vision for the future. And I want that future to be one in which, yes, yeah, small communities are thriving. 
They're thriving because we have created the capacity for them to be part of that innovation economy, that that knowledge-based economy. Mm-hmm. So I have this idea around, I was up in northern BC and northwest in 2017 and Terrace. Uh, there's enormous geothermal potential as well as wave and wind potential up there. Imagine if we had the Northwest BC Institute of clean energy. Mm-hmm. And we were the innovators in developing not only how to create clean energy out of geothermal or wave or solar or wind, how to store it, how to move it, how to right. ensure that it can be leveled up at the scale that we need it to be leveled up because we are honest about how serious the climate crisis is. Mm-hmm. We have this incredible potential to be world leading on that front. And yet, we seem to have this story that we're still this primary economy that that exports raw resources. We're not. We don't need to be. And let's be that extraordinary place that we have the potential of being. Right. Really quick question. In two and a half years, do you still want to be the leader of the BC Green Party? Is that your vision? <laughs> that you'll be running in the next election as the leader? Yeah, that that's that's definitely the plan. You know, I had to ask. <laughs> so so yeah, I will be the the only returning leader, perhaps, to the stage <laughs> Maybe. for the debates. We are now in the podcast exclusive part of my chat with BC Green leader Sonia Furstenau. Sonia, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for being here. It's the third time we're doing this. I was just going to say, third <clears throat> first time. time in person, though. Yeah, it's really it's really a treat. Always to talk with you. I love chatting with you. (laughs) (laughs) You're very thoughtful in your answers. I don't, you are a politician at the end of the day, but I don't feel like I'm getting a lot of spin. I feel like I am getting a very honest, sincere, thoughtful answer. And I can disagree with you, but I just like that approach that you have. I just don't have the energy or capacity to kind of keep track of other things other than what I really think and really believe. That's and how it should be. I've, uh, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about all of these kinds of big issues, mm-hmm. politics, democracy, governance, inequality. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it's, you know, when I'm answering a question or responding to, uh, you know, an interview, I'm I'm coming from that place of who am I really? What do I really think? And you know, I hope that that comes across. Um, I never really expected or intended to be a politician. I feel like it's a series of that's what makes you the philosopher queen. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole idea of this this person who is thoughtful with ideas and they they have to come down to, and and serve the people even though they don't really want to do it or it wasn't in the cards? Yeah, I think the one one of the risks with this is, is and I've been feeling it a lot lately, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, I, I feel this stuff very deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of being written right now about ecological grief. Um, and, you know, I, I feel that. I look at the cedar trees flagging uh, or I drive through a clear cut, uh, and I feel sadness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about the world that I grew up in and, and just how different that is from the world that my kids are growing up in. Right. Um, James McKinnon wrote a beautiful book, The Once and Future World. And I actually read it 
while I was deciding whether I was going to run for local government. Mm. And he describes this generation over generation kind of forgetting of what came before. And so we always have a new baseline. Like So my kid's baseline of what the world is ecologically is different from my baseline. Right, yeah. And so we have this important role, and I think we see it a lot with uh, Indigenous culture, of that memory keeping, of that oral history, mm-hmm. that storytelling of what was. And Andrew, um, maybe you can edit that part out. <laughs> Adam. <Who? laughs> that was a Freudian slip if there ever was one. Uh, that storytelling, and Adam Olson is magnificent at this. Yeah. And really roots his work in that deep knowledge and understanding of his stories and his culture and what his family taught him and what his relatives taught him. Mm-hmm. And he speaks of his salmon relatives, his cedar relatives. Right. Let's talk about our federal government relatives for a second. <laughs> I have to bring it up because it's it's obviously happening in the news, but let's talk about this confidence and supply agreement that the federal NDP just struck with the federal liberals, the Trudeau government. The BC Greens had this kind of agreement with the BC NDP, and as the junior party in that agreement, the party that's basically holding up the government, did you think it worked out? Like, did you think that your party got what it wanted in terms of the policy priorities? There were a lot of outcomes from that confidence and supply agreement, particularly in the first year and a half, two years mm-hmm. of the minority government, banning big money as a starting place from politics. I, I think when you look at uh, politics south of the border and you recognize how dangerous massive amounts of money into politics as that's that was a win for democracy that was yeah. a win for the public of bc uh everything from environmental reform professional reliance reform which is why i ran mm-hmm. uh to the innovation commissioner the fair wage commissions that you know we see this change in minimum wage and that was brought in because of the work of the fair wages commissioner right um there was a lot of cooperation that happened in those three years, three and a half years. And so, yeah, I, I, I look at it as can we point to outcomes that happened because of that agreement, because the Greens were in the legislature? Absolutely. Are there boulders that we're still pushing up the mountain and that are still really important but haven't gotten to where they need to get to? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are things on the political agenda today that I don't think would be there if it hadn't been for Greens being in the legislature and for the work that was done during that minority government. Right. And I want to invoke literally what we were just talking about in terms of identity. The things you mentioned, none of that had to do with the environment. So when we're talking about Site C or we're talking about the subsidies to uh, fossil fuel companies, like the Greens didn't move anything Mm-hmm. On, on those fronts. And and your whole identity is not whole identity, but your brand certainly is based around environmentalism and looking things through a climate change action lens. So ultimately, those priorities didn't go anywhere, right? 
I wouldn't say they didn't go anywhere. I mean, Clean BC, a suite of policies uh, to to address climate change, was very much driven by the the BC Greens and, and importantly, the staff uh, of BC Greens. Claire Hume, I'm going to say her name. She sure. was our policy lead on climate. And uh, Claire had an enormous amount of input and impact on on Clean BC. I, th- I think it's important that, and, and I recognize we have the work to do on this, but our brand shouldn't be limited to environmentalism. And I think, for example, uh, the question of Ministry of Children and Families and the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in our welfare, in our, sorry, in our child welfare system. Mm-hmm. That question was asked at the leadership debate in 2020. That's never been asked at a leadership debate. Hmm. That was asked because the work that I focused on a lot in both my riding and provincially was to raise awareness around the fact that we still have an apprehension of Indigenous children problem in this province. It is still happening. (laughs) And we have a long ways to go to remedy and rectify the harms, not only of the past, but of the present. Right. And I think it's, it's again, the more holistic approach that I have is, is to recognize well-being and health are really interlinked to how our economy functions, how our healthcare system works. Do we have enough housing? Are we addressing the deficits in mental health care? <laughs> uh, and, and that it's not, we are not a, a one issue party in any way, shape, right. or form. But what we bring is, uh, I, I would say, a very different lens and a very different approach, which is, what does the evidence tell us? What does the data tell us? Mm-hmm. How do we get to the solutions that address these problems? How do we be accountable in, in moving those forward? How do we measure success? And the importance of democracy and transparency at the center of all that we have to operate from a place of service to the public. Right. And I certainly did not mean to imply that <laughs> you're a one-issue party or a one-lens party by any means. My my thought with, with regards to that is at the end of the day, you still have to sell a certain promise. You can call mm-hmm. it a brand or identity, whatever. But, but that has to still be entrenched in the mind of the voters and mm-hmm. of British Columbians, right? And I gave you the example of the way that the BC NDP has certainly marketed themselves, the way the BC Liberals have marketed mm-hmm. themselves, and they've really entrenched this I- idea of identity. So, I mean, I call you the philosopher queen because I think you are very thoughtful on a wide array of issues and you add certain nuance. And again, you speak from the heart. And so the the, the charge there is not that you are one dimensional, mm-hmm. uh, but rather is the identity being conveyed? Mm-hmm. And on that topic, I, I then have to ask, and you know I like to needle you about this, when we look at the BC Green Party under your predecessor versus you, what is the difference? Where have you moved the party or have you moved the party or is it just a continuation of the previous leadership? No, I, I, I think there is, a, there is a difference and there is a shift. I think that uh, in a lot of ways, uh, we would, would represent a more sort of traditional view of, of the Green Party. Uh, I bring a very human-centered 
uh, equity-centered uh, approach. And, and that's informed by the work I've done uh, both as a teacher, but uh, as a I for a long time worked with an organization called Results Canada that was really geared towards ending the worst aspects of, of poverty and hunger in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, advocacy for good policies that really get outcomes and solutions for, for people. Uh, approaching uh, lobbying from a place of we're going to bring solutions to the table. We're right. going to bring solutions to politicians and show them that this is a win-win situation. Uh, and and that really informs how I approach my work as an MLA and as so, a leader. Well, what I'm hearing is that you've effectively added this sense or lens of equity that perhaps mm -hmm. did not exist before. Well, it's it's certainly much more of a focus. Okay. And and again, from my own childhood and personal experience, and and my view of the world, I studied history, taught 20th century history in high school. One of the most destabilizing conditions in a society is when inequality gets to a point mm -hmm. where it starts to really erode people's sense of connection and trust. Mm -hmm. uh, when people are working really hard and they just cannot get ahead, it is just impossible to kind of get out of that crushing place of, I can't afford you know, housing, I can't afford groceries. Uh, and so when I, when I look at something like inequality and the growing inequality that we see in BC, in Canada, around the world, mm -hmm. I see that with alarm bells. Yeah. And I think that governments have a very important role to play in ensuring that inequality doesn't get to that place where it starts to erode the stability, the connectivity of society. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, that's for me a very driving aspect of the work I do. When you look at something like climate change, climate change is a public health emergency. And, and we can just look at 2021 to see the evidence of that, the heat dome. Yeah, and, it, and it's something that uh, if not highlights, exacerbates uh, inequality as well. Absolutely. Who was most impacted by the heat dome? Vulnerable people. And then you had the the long drought and fire season, mm -hmm. uh, evacuations of towns, people being displaced, an entire town being burnt down. Yeah. Uh, and then we got into the floods in November. And once again, it is people who are least able to weather these impacts uh, who are hurt and harmed the most. Uh, and, and you can see that it does. It exacerbates inequality. It makes things harder for people. And so we have to look at climate change not just as an environmental issue. It mm -hmm. is a social issue. It is an economic issue. And we have to recognize we have to be prepared for these ongoing impacts becoming more frequent and more severe. How do we protect the most vulnerable? Yeah. I'm going to pitch an idea to you. Okay. It's a hot take, actually. All right. <laughs> I don't know if I'm very good at that. Well, it's my hot take, and it could be way off base, but I'm going to pitch this idea to you. I think that what you're proposing and, and your vision of how public policy should be looked at and how governance should effectively change, I think while all your ideas are fantastic, 
I think you're hampered by the brand of being a quote unquote green party, because I don't think that there's consistency on a municipal level, on a federal level Mm -hmm. of what that means. And so someone might have an opinion or an idea of what a green party means by looking at things federally. And then there's almost this guilt by association. And, And you see this. I mean, this happens, right? I mean, the BC liberals are going through a whole thing because they don't want to be associated with the federal liberals yeah. because they know that r- wrongly people think that they're two, the, the one and the same and they're not. What would you say about that? Like, do, do you think that at some point, and I know you don't like talking about branding and politics mm-hmm. and all this other stuff, but like, is that kind of hindering the perception uh, among voters who might actually be on board with what you're talking about? Because the Greens do have perceptions with regard to elitist. I'm certainly not calling you that. You are not that. But they have these perceptions out there and Mm. because there is no cohesive identity of what a green party is. I take that as that's my job as the leader is to be able to convey that, you know, what your perception is should be based on the work we do, what informs that work, the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And the fact that we center service in everything that we do. Yeah. Um, it, that's, that's the job that I've applied for <laughs> and got in September of 2020 uh, as leader, recognizing that a huge, big part of that job is to connect with people mm-hmm. and to provide that sense of who we really are and look at look at our work. It, it's not what we say. It's what we show. It's mm-hmm. what we do. Um, and, you know, again, it's, it's yet another boulder to push up a mountain, but apparently that's something that I'm inclined to do. If you are interested in a rebranding exercise, I hear the name BC Liberal might be available soon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Cascadia Party? <laughs> Maybe, sure. <laughs> Touching again on this idea, but but off on a tangent here, how do how does any party become more diverse? Mm-hmm. One of your challenges, mm-hmm. one of the boulders that you have to push up mm-hmm. a mountain is attracting wide swaths of the population, mm-hmm. which effectively means diversity. Yeah. How do you bring in people that, or demographics, I should say, that mm-hmm. historically have not been engaged with the BC Greens? That could be geographical, that could be racial, yeah. uh, that could be an age demographic thing. How do you engage yeah. as many people as possible? I see that as twofold. One and and this has been a big part of my work uh, and the work of our executive director and our council, which is work on the internal part first, work on the culture of the party, work on the culture of the organization, make it a safe, inviting, inclusive place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've invested in equity, diversity, inclusiveness training. The party is uh, in the right now in the process of hiring a person specifically for that role. Mm. Wow. Uh, and then... Have other parties done that? Just I don't out of know. curiosity. I don't I'm just... Know. Oh, yeah. you I, keep tabs on everyone? Come I, on. I, I not. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness me. Um, it's a good thing I have an app for my kids' <laughs> grades, because otherwise I wouldn't keep track of that. Uh, and then we have to... But I was just saying this This would have been your opportunity to say, no, they haven't. We're the only party in BC that's doing this. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't if know. that's true I, or not. Okay. Uh, 
So I, I don't Let's know if that's say you true are. or not. Let's just pretend you are. <laughs> um, and then the second part of, of our work is to, to go to the communities, to reach out, to not wait and just say, well, nobody's coming. Hmm. It's, it's to actually actively uh, reach out and connect. One of the things we've done, for example, uh, in the last two years in, during Black History Month is, is allow my social media channel to be taken over. Uh, and to have the voices of black leaders in the community mm. speak and tell the story of black history in BC, tell the story of the reality for black people in BC right now, as opposed to me saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell that story. I can't right. tell that story. But I can certainly make space for that. I think more importantly, not more, but it's really important for us to recognize there is a growing racism problem in BC, in Canada, in North America. We saw the report out just last week about the growing number of hate crimes. And I think, again, all political parties, and I, I believe in here in BC, we have this connection and unity on this front. We all have to take very seriously mm -hmm. uh, that there has to be a proactive response to racism uh, one of the things, for example, that we've called for and I know is uh, hopefully we're going to be seeing is anti-racism education throughout the child's education from K to 12, not just a one-off. Mm -hmm. It needs to be embedded into our education system. Uh, we need to both understand the history of racism and colonialism and also recognize that it is absolutely exist, both in individual manifestations, uh, but also there is systemic racism in, in our institutions, uh, in our hospitals, in our systems that uh, require us to be very honest and very clear about how those are impacting people. So it's it's both internal work for us as a party, mm -hmm. but I think on the, on the wider political agenda, all of us need to be alarmed by what the data is showing us and what we are hearing from people about their experiences of being targeted yeah. because of their skin color. What is behind that rise in hate crimes, racism? Because... I hate using the term culture war, but I do see on one hand, you have a heightened sense of empathy. You have increased knowledge about things like systemic racism. I remember reading about systemic racism and systemic discrimination in university, and now it's a it's a mainstream idea. So on one hand, we do have this, you know, big progressive wave. And on the other hand, you, you know, you're saying that there's this data to show that, well, actually, Racist incidents are up. Is, mm -hmm. is it that we we just see more of it now, or we're giving we're shining more light on it, or is it things, or is it you know growing inequity that's causing these uh, this anger from from a certain underbelly in society? Like wh why is racism on the rise? Hmm. That that is a million dollar question. I think you know if I know all if, of I'm gonna, if I'm going to ask anyone, <laughs> I'm going to ask the philosopher okay. queen. So you have to. Well, Break I'm, this down for me. I'm going to look at it uh, through the lens of a historian. And, yeah. and uh, yes, growing inequities and inequality uh, often do lead to 
wanting to find a scapegoat, right? And so uh, when you look at, for example, uh, the history of Europe pre-World War II, uh, the, the way in which Jewish people were scapegoated mm. for the economic uh, tragedies that were unfolding in Germany because of the reparations they were forced to pay after World right. War I, uh, that became you know, one of the 20th, well, certainly the 20th century's worst genocides, mm -hmm. right? And uh, we have to be mindful that uh, these patterns don't go away. Mm -hmm. And there is a rise in anti-Semitism right now. That is also deeply worrying. Yeah. Yeah, and it's coded in the, the same similar thing of globalists, or, you know, it's co coded in different... Uh, ways, but it's the same pattern that you, that you just described pre-World War II. It comes back to, for me in a lot of ways, the, the, the promise of democracy in, in being this uh, ability for governments to provide to their citizens uh, policies and legislation and approaches to, to governing that are meant to be transparent and accountable. Mm-hmm. And that take away that sense of like, I don't understand why these bad things are happening in my life, or I don't understand why I can't get access to the services I need, or mm -hmm. why, why the world feels unfair to me. Governments have this very heavy burden and responsibility of making sure that, that the citizens are clear about why and how decisions are being made. Yeah. And that when we see rising issues like we're seeing, uh, governments need to get in front of that mm -hmm. and, and really be solution makers. Do not let these narratives, these stories uh, of, of, you know, we can blame this group or these people for our problems, don't let those get out of hand. Right. I want to talk about you for a second. <laughs> You've had a, a pretty tumultuous couple of years. Like it's, I, I think it's actually underappreciated that the, the your predecessor, the, the former leader of the BC Green Party, was not going to run again. You get acclaimed as the the new leader, and then there's an, an election the same week, or the uh, or an election called the writ was dropped uh, the same week. Because I remember we, we chatted yeah. and then by the time we put out the episode, yeah. it, the writ was dropped that day. And now you went for, you had this transition where you, again, you were the, your party was the junior partner in this mm -hmm. confidence and supply agreement. You had a lot more influence, certainly in terms of government policy. And now you are in opposition, firmly mm -hmm. entrenched in opposition. Mm -hmm. Is it how has that been? Like, I imagine that when when you decided to run for leader, there were certain expectations of how you were going to operate in government, and now suddenly you are mm -hmm. in opposition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, what, that line, "Life is what happens when you're planning something else," right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I've. I, I, what's really important is is not focusing on, oh, I wish things were this way, I wish things are that way. It's being really honest and realistic about how things are and mm -hmm. then trying to find ways, for me, to be useful, to be contributing to solutions. I, I think for me, uh, I do feel some sadness, really, because the minority government, it wasn't 
in the end, just the relationship and the collaboration largely at a staff-to-staff level. There was an enormous mm. amount of collaboration happening uh, that ultimately, I think, really led to really good outcomes when it came to legislation and, and ensuring that, you know, things were coming out in a way that didn't create a lot of um, conflict. Yeah. And then that translated, I remember in the the summer of 2020, the spring and summer of 2020, there were a flurry of newspaper articles about like, wow, this unprecedented level of collaboration in the BC legislature and yeah. the response to COVID. Partisanship left the room or house right. or, yeah. And, and uh, I think there was something to be proud of in that, in that we could show what mature governance could really look like. Mm-hmm. And that putting party and partisan interests second to the public really generated this capacity for, you know, some of the you know, more effective kind of debate in the house and uh, right. focus on solutions. And we came back after the snap election in 2020 <laughs> and, uh, you know, much of that goodwill had left the building. Right. Uh, I think with the committee that's going to be struck, the health committee, and and getting to work on the drug poisoning crisis across all three parties on that committee is a step back to that potential for really more mature kind of approaches to things in the legislature. I hope so. I hope so too. I just wonder, and I mean, I, I, I you and I talked about this off mic, but, you know, I, I hear this from BC liberals that... Ah, Andrew Wilkinson got stabbed in the back because he was not being, you know, this feisty opposition leader during the during COVID and the pandemic. And in providing this collaboration, the real winner was the Horgan government. And they came out looking great and look at our leadership and we brought everyone together. And that created a lot of goodwill with the public, whereas the opposition parties weren't being opposition. They were being more collaborative, certainly. Mm -hmm. And. They paid for it politically. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that we have to be able to look beyond the four-year cycles of, of electioneering and elections and ask ourselves, how do, we, how do we create the conditions in these legislatures, in our parliaments, that engender the best kind of debate the best kind of approaches to legislation, to policy making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll often hear MLAs talk about, oh, the work I'm most proud of is the work I do on committees. It's the work I do when we collaborate. Mm. I think there's a an appetite and even a hunger for that amongst many of the people who are elected. And nobody really gets into politics if they don't want to serve. I, I'm right. gonna I'm gonna take that as a given. It's 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 a tough job. Sure. Creating those conditions and those opportunities for the best kind of service is what we should be striving for. Right. And not you know, not always giving in to taking the sharpest partisan mm. kind of stab or scoring the point here. Uh I, I really do think that we 
we want to do our very best and it's up to us to create those conditions. So what's your relationship like with BC Premier John Horgan right now? You guys buds? I wouldn't characterize it as buds. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there a direct line of communication? Not particularly, no. But there was in the past when, not with you specifically, but certainly between the parties. Yeah, there had been um, a a number of avenues of communication uh, between us and the NDP caucus and uh, during the confidence and supply agreement. Um, It has reset to the kind of standard operating procedures of, you know, parties are separate. Right. Uh, And again, it, it doesn't have to be this way. Like there's no, there's no rule book that says uh, caucuses can't work together or talk to each other or, or work collaboratively. And But the system is kind of set up that way, right? It is, but, you know, you can look at a, a number of other parliamentary democracies around the world mm. and uh, they aren't operating that way. Now, a lot of them, there are very few major democracies that are left with first past the post. So that's yeah. UK, US and Canada. Uh, the vast majority of democracies are using some form of proportional representation, which means that they typically end up with a non-majority uh, outcome yeah. in their elections. And so it's built in that they have to work to, yeah, they have to figure out how to work across party lines. We just saw the confidence and supply agreement come out in the federal government. And it, it's interesting to me that you know, this is just seen as this remarkable occurrence and, and how did this ever happen? Well, it happens all the time in most major democracies. There's yeah. either coalition governments or confidence and supply agreements. It's not untypical of, a, of democracies where parties work across party lines. Yeah. What we should be trying to avoid is getting to a place where partisanship becomes so polarizing. Right. You don't even talk that to you can't yeah. even create those avenues for working across party lines, and we see that very much in the United States. Sure. Uh, we see a very nasty, negative kind of approach to politics, and I think we will do our very best if we choose to avoid going to that kind of place. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't dehumanize each other. You and interim opposition leader Shirley Bond seem to have mm-hmm. a pretty good working relationship. At least your names both appeared on the same sort of press releases mm-hmm. or uh, critiques of the government, certainly. What is your relationship like with Kevin Falcon now that he's the new BC Liberal leader? Yeah, I, I met with him when he, when he uh, came to the legislature soon after winning the leadership race. Uh, we had a very nice conversation. I think, uh, you know, we agree that there's, we have differences on policy issues and mm-hmm. policy fronts uh, on a lot of fronts, but but also shared uh, goals and values on others. Um, I hope to see the kind of collaborative approach that we've seen with the BC Liberals under Shirley Bond to continue. Um, you know, I think the the joint call that she and I have been making for 10 months on the, the parliamentary committee for addressing the drug poisoning crisis came from a, a place of, you know, really wanting to get to solutions yeah. urgently. 
and wanting to be part of that solution making, wanting again to get to that shared reality so that government has the the capacity is empowered to to really do what it what is needed. And you know, you talked about safe supply a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to recognize that people are dying from a poisonous and chaotic drug supply. And we also have to recognize that in BC, there's over 100,000 people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's before you count people like me who buy a bottle of wine at the liquor store. Now, that is safe supply. I'm not worried that there is poison poison in that bottle of wine. Yeah. Uh, it is, it, you know, you look at cannabis, uh, that you get a safe supply of cannabis yeah. now when you go to you the cannabis the dosage store. And, yeah. When it comes, you know, this is obviously a, a topic. I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm some sort of expert, but, but I do, I am, I'm very concerned about this topic. I've spoke about it a lot. I've written about it a lot. I, I've talked to people on the show about the drug poisoning crisis quite a bit, mm-hmm. I almost, I mean, I, I love your optimism and I do hope that we do see progress in this. And I'm not, I'm not questioning that. I, I just wonder, at what point is this just like a political calculation that governments look at it? And we can talk about several different levels of government and different parties, but they look at it and go, you know, this doesn't really move the needle. And we can put resources at something that will make us look popular or, or be a big political win. Because I just don't, I, I, I can't square why governments have really dragged their heels on this. And it, it goes back to, you know, when I had that uh, rant or commentary on it, it's just like, do something. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> at least at least convince me that you're like really trying on this. Mm-hmm. But we don't, like, there's not even this province. Like, we don't have objective set up. Mm-hmm. We don't even um, define what is an abject failure, which I think is what we're at, versus, okay, we're making progress on this file. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just don't see any political will towards this. And I wonder how much of that ultimately is just a poor reflection on our society, that this is not a, you know, we we read the news or, or we see these things, we get sad, but then it's not something that's driving voters to, to make their decisions. Does that worry you, that just ultimately mm-hmm. people don't, yeah, it worries, don't care? It, 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 I, I think people do care, actually. I hope they do. I, I, I think that uh, the number of people who personally know someone who has been harmed by poisonous drugs or who has lost their life is not insignificant. I think that uh, if we are honest and realistic, we can look at the effects that prohibition had on both the toxicity of alcohol, but Mm -hmm. also the creation of the conditions for criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. And we need, as uh, elected representatives and and government, needs to make that connection for people that this isn't just about uh, drug poisoning, that people are being poisoned, brain injured, or killed by these toxic drugs. This has created an entire realm of criminal activity. Yeah. And uh, that in and of itself is a chaos machine. Yeah. So 
if you look at it either as a public safety issue or a public health emergency, in both cases, those are the responsibilities of government. And it should not be we only work on things that are going to move the political needle and are it going to get us It should not be, but and perhaps I, it is. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not that cynical about politics yet. I don't want to ever be that cynical <laughs> We should about stop politics. talking, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really think uh, it's not just elected people who, are, uh, who find themselves in, in these positions by accident. They, they want to serve. But people in the public service also want to serve. Mm-hmm. And I know that, uh, you know, what we need to do is create that political opening to allow that service to happen, to allow people to bring forward those solutions, to move, move forward, to, to create that, that space for us to say, this can be solved. And we can look to other jurisdictions, Portugal as an example, right? We can recognize that. My problem, though, is that we've made the recommendations. We've done the studies. Yeah. We, like, we know that decriminalization, safe supply will help tremendously, right? Like, these are recommendations that have been made by Dr. Bonnie Henry herself. Yeah. And even if, like, originally I thought maybe it was a stigma thing uh, with regard to safe supply. But even if that was the case, then I feel like if governments cared – they would then dump a, like so much money into addictions treatment. I don't necessarily think that that's going to stop poisonings, mm-hmm. but then at least you could say, okay, well, at least this government is showing some political will to take action on mm-hmm. it. I just don't feel like there's been any action from the federal government, from the provincial government. And, mm-hmm. and this is a file that just frustrates me so much because it went from thinking, oh, there's a stigma about safe supply to thinking government just doesn't care. And then by extension, I, I, I'm not convinced that voters care. And it's a sad, like, I know that's a sad indictment, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I just wonder if voters, if voters, if that doesn't register with voters or it's not in their top five issues that they're truly voting on, th- then then how do you generate political will? Because I'm sure that there are people within the BC NDP caucus that want to really move on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's people in the federal government that really want to move on mm-hmm. this. And yet for some reason... We don't see anything. Well, and again, I'll come back to the committee being a place that creates that shared reality, that creates that shared sense of this is what the roots of this problem are. Mm -hmm. These are the solutions. This is how it can be implemented. And even the the ability to have people present to that that committee to be asked questions, to share their expertise, their knowledge, their understanding, their lived experience, that in and of itself, when you think of parliament, right, the root of it is to talk. And it is in talking that we create that shared reality. And once you have that, you can take action based on that consensus about Mm -hmm. what is real. And, you know, it's, this is one of the, Back to the the question around how we do politics and how we govern, that ability to have discourse, to be able to ask questions, to debate in a in a effective way 
uh, is really essential to healthy functioning democracy. And the, the interesting thing about the health committee and the other standing committees is they're supposed to be struck every single time you start a new parliament. They're supposed to be operating all the time. Mm -hmm. But we have eroded that role of the legislators and the tools that they have, these mm -hmm. committees, uh, to the point that it's seen as, well, the premier finally decided that he would let this committee have a terms of reference. Well, no, the committee, according to the, the traditions of parliament, exists and should simply exist. It should be able but to... But someone has to put it into existence, right? Well, it's in the standing orders that every select standing committee is actually... Uh, the people are assigned to it and the committees are basically meant to go with every parliament. So were there just no committees? I'm, I'm confused. Like, what? So there are some committees that do. So the finance committee, yeah. uh, the children and youth committee, because it has an oversight role of the representative for children and youth... Uh, those committees are operating every parliament and, and ongoing. Uh, but other committees like the health committee, the environment committee, the education committee, those are meant to also be standing committees, mm -hmm. um, but they their use has been pushed aside. So do they still exist? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I, they exist. They don't meet? They don't meet. And when did this start? When did this start where you had these standing committees that exist, but effectively we're not doing anything it, we're not convening it, it's a slow erosion over time right okay. and it it becomes uh easier for governments to say oh we don't we don't need those committees and all their recommendations we'll just let cabinet and the executive council do its thing but parliament or the legislature is meant to have quite a an active and participatory role in in the overall government mm -hmm. and the more we can bring that back, I think the more we get to that place of effective discourse, effective approaches to solution making in between elections. Right. An election is a time for a political party to say, here's my vision for the future. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's what it means for you. Mm -hmm. And that, that then the voters say, okay, I, I can really get behind that vision. I'm really excited about that. And then in between elections, ideally what we're doing is making that legislature function as best it can to serve democracy and the people. Yeah. Hindsight being 2020, I guess we'll talk about 2020. <laughs> is there, and, and obviously you were acclaimed as leader and then were thrown into a provincial election. Is there anything you would have done differently in the last provincial election? Uh, well, uh, not acclaimed. I had to win the leadership. Sorry. My, that's, <laughs> that reflects my poor vocabulary that's okay. and word choice. Uh, I meant you won it and yeah, then you were Yeah. So announced. there was yeah. exactly one week between the leadership, uh, vote and me becoming the leader of the BC Greens and the election being called. Yeah. Uh, I think that given that and given the fact that we had, no time as a party to prepare for the election, to get candidates in place, uh, to prepare a platform. What we accomplished in 28 days was astonishing. Right. And I, I will give credit where it's due. Just an extraordinary team of people who 
basically gave everything they had for 28 days. But uh, this is different than a regret, right? Like saying you'll, you would have done something differently is there's a slight difference between that and a regret. So I'm not asking you regrets. I'm just saying, would, is there something you would have done differently? I, I think, you know, no, okay. because I get the conditions we had required of us what we did. Sure. And, uh, I don't look back at the at the election campaign and say, oh, you know, that would have been really great. I think we did the best we could under the conditions we are. However. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> it's, it's the looking ahead that really matters. Mm. So where do I want us to be when the next election is called? And I have been working towards that since the day after the election. Mm. Uh, so I want us to have a fully fleshed out uh, platform mm -hmm. with policies that are informed by evidence and are solution oriented. Mm -hmm. I want us to have candidates ready to go with teams uh, in uh, ridings across the province. I want us to have a really strong campaign team ready to go. And I look at what we've accomplished since the election and, and, you know, really the last 18 months have been the first 18 months of my leadership. Uh, and I'm really proud of what we've accomplished so far. We've had record-breaking uh, fundraising, both mm -hmm. during the election, record-breaking fundraising. And in the first year, 2021, we raised over a million dollars. Never done that hmm. as a party before. Um, we have uh, an enormous amount of engagement and members and people that are getting involved, volunteering, reaching out. Uh, and so this really is the kind of background and foundational work that is so important for us to be doing. Right. We are starting from a very different place from the other parties. We're yes. small. <laughs> uh, and so I've, I am oriented very much to... Uh, the next election, and to ensuring that, as you say, people understand who we are, mm -hmm. uh, that we aren't defined by what other people or other parties say about us. We're defined by who we are and what we've worked on, what we've accomplished, uh, and what our vision is for the province. Yeah. Well, I certainly wish you luck on that, and, and I'm rooting for you because I think you are a very important voice in the BC legislature. Uh, I highly respect your work and and uh, the way you look at politics, the way you look at governance as how it should be, <laughs> maybe not necessarily how it is. Uh, but before I let you go, are there other super serious debates that you are very passionate about? Because I might need a, a pinch hitter every now and then for, for those well actually debates. So mayonnaise, oh, yeah. Jojo jumped on that and she said Sonia's take on mayonnaise is one of her most ardent when it comes to super serious topics. Super serious, you know, and I'm not going to tell you what side of the equation okay. I fall on this, but I think you could have a debate about, for example, the movie Titanic. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That would be an interesting one to have. Okay. Okay. You could have a debate on, uh, you know, should there be... 
Oh, I'm trying to think here. What would not get me into too much trouble? <laughs> These super serious debates could be very. Uh, what were you going to say? Well, you, you don't know, have to say which side you were on. I'm just curious yeah, what you were going to say. I think we could be having some interesting conversations about social media in this day and age. Ah, yes, we had one on Twitter. But we that actually one. is kind of a super serious debate. Yeah. Right? Um, we had a silly one about Twitter, but it, there was some knowledge in there. We always like to dish out some facts. I think. Any and all sport really is open to super serious debate. Mm. Uh, you know, people dressing up in uniforms and throwing things at each other. <laughs> That's something that Interesting. we could definitely debate. You know what? You know what grinds my gears? I don't know why. It should not. Because it's not, it doesn't affect me. But when someone shows up to a sports game and they're wearing the jersey of a team that's not even playing. Right. So you're watching like Vancouver versus Edmonton, at, you know, hockey. Someone's wearing like an Anaheim Mighty Ducks jersey. And it's like, why Why would you wear that? Well, that is a super serious topic. <laughs> I would say on hockey, like I was in Edmonton in the 80s when it was Gretzky, Messier, Lowe, and uh, several Stanley Cups in a row. I've basically mm. given up on hockey since then. It'll okay. never reach that level in my mind again uh, when we had the great one in Edmonton. Oh, you know what? That I mean, not necessarily about sports, but debating the best decade. Oh, that right? I, like, <laughs> I, I would go all in on the eighties. <laughs> yeah, no, I happy to uh, brainstorm this. I'll send you my thoughts, Mo. Sure. On yeah, I might call on you. Topics. I'm not not joking. Yeah. Sometimes you know the scheduling doesn't work out, and I really want to do a debate, so I will let you know, and that can be done remotely as well. Absolutely. I mean. <laughs> Clearly, you aren't aware of just how badly this debate's going to go for you. <laughs> I just experienced one. I got my ass handed to me. It was not pleasant. Um, yeah, it, I will take those L's, you know, for, for the audience, for, for good content. I'll that's absolutely good. do that. You're a good team player. Sonia, thanks so much. Thanks, Mo. Folks, that's our podcast, the MLA for Couch and Valley and the leader of the BC Green Party. Yes, she is the philosopher queen of the BC legislature. She is Sonia Firstenau, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Yeah.